Herzlich willkommen zum Futurest-Podcast. Mein Name ist Lukas Sem Schreiber. Dieser April bleibt spannend, denn einiges ist passiert. Die Menschheit hat zum ersten Mal ein echtes Bild von einem schwarzen Loch gesehen. Julian Assange wurde in London festgenommen. Netanyahu wurde wiedergewählt. Notre Dame hat gebrannt und Poroschenko wurde als Präsident der Ukraine abgelöst. Die Gegenwart ist ereignisreich. Trotzdem blicken wir weiter in die Zukunft, heute mit einem spannenden Interview mit Gustav Strömfeld. Gustav arbeitet im Innovation Accelerator des World Food Program, eben der Institution der UN, die der Aufgabe nachgeht, dem Welthunger entgegenzuwirken. Gustav berichtet von dem Projekt Building Blocks, bei dem das World Food Program Blockchain-Technologie in Flüchtlingslagern in Jordanien einsetzt. Er redet aber auch davon, wie die UN mit Innovation umgeht und welche anderen Technologien im Kampf gegen den Welthunger relevant sind. Eine Unterhaltung auf Englisch, von der ich hoffe, dass sie für euch genauso spannend ist, wie sie für mich war. Alle relevanten Links zu dieser Folge findet ihr natürlich wie immer in den Show Notes. Solltet ihr gerne mehr Informationen von uns erhalten, lege ich euch unseren Newsletter ans Herz, der zweimal im Monat rausgeschickt wird. Dort teilen wir spannende Artikel und Informationen zu Themen der Innovation und der Zukunft. Und den Link dazu findet ihr ebenfalls in den Shownotes und somit wünsche ich euch sehr viel Spaß mit dieser Folge des Futurest Podcast. I'm just trying to think about the future and not be sad. How are these algorithms developed in these self-driving cars? What are the sort of contexts? Who are these engineers? Who are these companies? Anatomically modern humans have only been here about 200,000 years. There's no guarantee we're going to make this. So, Gustav, for our listeners, um, could you introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little bit of what you do the majority of your time? Yeah, sure. So, um, so I, my name is Gustav, as you as you have, have just said. Um, I work for the World Food Program. I work in the Innovation Accelerator. And my, the main work that I do is I uh, focus on our blockchain portfolio of projects, um, among other things. So um, my main my main goal is to try and identify how we're we're including digital innovation in the way that WFP does its work, but also testing out new ways of uh, of delivering assistance to people and how that might affect. Um, one, the way we do our work, but also the development of technology overall. So that's effectively what I do. What exactly, obviously, the food, the, the name of the World Food Program kind of um, already takes it away, but what are you trying to accomplish? Why was this whole thing initiated? Okay, so the World Food Program is one of the United Nations specialized agencies. Um, what that effectively means is, uh, so the United Nations that you must know of, Uh, based out in uh, in Geneva, in Copenhagen, and the Secretariat being based out in um, in New York. I mean, there's bases all over the place. The Hague, for example, um, kind of came about after the Second World War uh, around human, you know, humanitarian interests, but also uh, propagating world peace. And the World Food Program was one of the first agencies that was focused on delivering food. Um, I should really have better knowledge of when the, the exact dates were, but Uh, I'm horrendous at things like that, so um, I'll leave that to my counterparts to, to chastise me. But effectively, what the World Food Program's aim is, is to feed the 821 million people who go hungry every day around the world because of conflict, because of uh, climate change, because of political problems, you name it. The, the, the World Food Program is, exists to make sure people don't go hungry. And obviously, one of the choices that you have is um, sending food directly. But the World Food Program also has sent cash um, to people that are in need of 
food. But um, as far as I understand, if you send food directly, it kind of disrupts the food ecosystem of um, stores where they are. So tell me a little bit about that and what else you're doing to actually get the money where it's needed or the food in that matter. Sure. Um, so like, like you re- rightly said, the World Food Program delivers assistance, assistance in two ways. The traditional format is in actually delivering food, you know, bags of, bags of the main, the main food stuffs, uh, that people need, uh, be that oil, grain, rice, lentils, stuff like that. Cash is another form of assistance. Now, I don't have enough experience of the effects of food influx on local markets, but there are definitely examples of where it doesn't always work. And I think the World Food Program knows those. So we're more and more trying to move to a form of assistance that actually supports the local economy. Um, and that's why we do uh, cash or cash-derived um, assistance programs. Now, what do I mean by cash derived? When we think of, when you think of cash assistance, you think of people giving money, like, like you might give money to a person who's begging on the street. But that's not exactly how it works. Cash comes in various forms. It can either be restricted or it can be unrestricted. Um, restricted means that the cash can only, or the money can only be used for this for certain uses. Um, so for the purchase of food or, for example, if there's a health and sanitation program that UNICEF might run, it might just be for uh, soaps, for example. And unrestricted means that the individual has the choice on how they use their money. Now, based on a European Union um, report and significant amount of research, Actually, the better form of assistance is unrestricted cash because actually people can, in many cases, if you look at many of the economies where we work, the structure of that economy is very informal. And so people have more opportunity to bargain, to barter, to, to, to purchase food the way they want to. And in the case of restricted cash programs, WFP or, or the assistance provider has to hold a contract with the vendor at the other, at the other end, which means that you have a much more standardized pricing structure. You have less bargaining power. Uh, you have less use of informal networks. And what that means is it creates a little bit more price pressure effectively on, on, on people. That being said, again, it all depends on the context. Some cash programs are good in some places. Some cash programs are good in others. There is no, never a one size fits all for assistance provision. That also, is relevant when it comes to how people receive cash. Sometimes it's in the form of mobile money. Sometimes it's in the form of uh, a card that holds enti- holds their entitlements. Sometimes it's in the form of a uh, in the form of paper that they actually then redeem for uh, for food. Um, and sometimes it's food itself. And explain to me how the traditional way was how the refugees in that sense, for example, would take the voucher or take the cash and actually do something with it. Well, I mean, in the way that you would. So, um, if you think uh, on any, on, you know, if you receive a McDonald's voucher, right? That voucher that you received, let's say through a magazine. Yeah. Um, you go, you take that voucher. What happened was, uh, McDonald's paid some money to the, to the magazine provider that you then got the voucher to you. Yeah. Uh, and then the voucher was then traded, traded with McDonald's. Right. And the, the system repeats itself. Very, very similar to the way it works with us. We would, we would work with a, 
Uh, normally, the way uh, assistance, assistance providers uh, manage the delivery of assistance is through NGOs. So we work with a Save the Children or Norwegian um, Refugee Council or one of the other uh, big uh, international um, NGOs. They work with the beneficiaries, so they're on the ground. They're people who are from the area normally. Um, we contract that NGO. The NGO gives be it the card or, or the or the paper voucher to the individual. The individual then goes to a shop that has been that has been designated as a shop where they can trade in these vouchers for something, uh, or they go to a distribution center where they can again trade in those vouchers for 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 whatever their that distribution center is delivering, and then they receive um, receive their food, and then we pay the end uh, organization the sum of what was transacted and. Why and what issues arise in that system that you would think that eventually blockchain would help in um, in that whole process? Sure. Um, so predominantly, like reconciliation is quite a difficult activity. So consider just paper vouchers. Think about we're talking about small pieces of paper that are easy to lose, right? So just that simple fact makes the reconciliation process and the settlement process paying the vendor difficult. Invoicing, difficult. Handling the, just simply handling the movement of money becomes more and more complex, uh, the less transparency you have in the system. And so blockchain makes sense because what it does is it ensures that all parties in the system, um, us, the vendors and the bank, all have the same route of information. And because they all, we all have the same route of information, the weight that is applied to invoicing is reduced. The weight that is applied to um, the transaction process is reduced. So the overall process itself reduces a lot of waste. It becomes much more, much more efficient. And from what I've seen in my research, you're actually using quite several technologies to make this all happen, especially to, to make the identification possible. So, um, in the whole process, they go into the store, they have the digitalized voucher, and what happens? Okay, so quite simply, what happens is, um, let's say I'm a beneficiary. I enroll in the system by going to my local... I arrive in the refugee camp, I enroll with UNHCR. When I enroll with UNHCR, so UNHCR is the UN agency that's focused on refugees and managing refugees. UNHCR enroll me in the system. I then um, uh, get enrolled in the food provision system. I... Um, I'm told, or I guess I get explained how I go through the, 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 the process of buying my food, or I talk to other people and go through the same thing. And then I go to the shop. Sorry, at the beginning, UNHCR will scan my irises, um, because as part of their process, when they bring people into the refugee system, into the camps, uh, they do biometric identification of those individuals. And they put that onto what's called the iCloud database, which is handled by them and a, and and the provider in um, in Jordan. We then go to uh, sorry, then then I would go to the shop um, at the beginning of the month. I receive a text message saying you've received the money that you you and that you uh, are entitled to. Um, I will then go to the shop, scan or get all my food like you would normally. Except when I go to the cash register, instead of paying with a card, I will scan my eyes. Okay. And then my, that scan will send a, a query to the iCloud database. It will return something called the case ID. The case ID number is a family identifier, which is how 
uh, UNHCR manage um, refugees. The case ID then goes for authorization to the building block system. Building blocks returns the change in um, uh, the change in balance and then affects the transaction between the beneficiary's wallet and the uh, vendor's wallet. And then every week, the f- total sum of transactions that takes place gets sent to the to the to the vendor. Um, the individual in the in the shop just gets their receipt. They can see their balance. They can see that the the amount that they've just spent, and then they leave with their shopping. That's incredible. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, so how has it been received by the beneficiaries? And obviously, now that the pro- program has been going on for some time, what are the lessons learned? What can you say, oh, that this didn't work too well, or people need more information in this area? What do you think? Sure. Um, so number one, the system hasn't changed for the beneficiary, for the, for the refugees. The beneficiaries or refugees, um, two words that kind of mean the same thing in this context, have not changed their experience at all. It's exactly the same as it was before, except on the back end, it's a lot simpler. Um, what things... Okay, so in Jordan, you have two communities of refugees. You have 100,000 refugees in the refugee camps, and then you have 400,000 refugees in the communities of, uh, of Jordan, in, in areas around uh, around the country. Um One of the things we noticed was when we were trying to, when we're looking to scale this project, um, the situation within the camp being quite controlled was relatively easy for us to, well, relatively easy is maybe not the right word, but uh, it was the right environment to test this project out. But now we're getting to the point where we have to scale this to other countries, other contexts. We have to bring it into, uh, into uh, a production environment for the, for the greater, uh, people in Jordan, uh, and we're coming up against a lot of road bro- roadblocks. Uh, a lot of them are around contracting. Um, so, as you can imagine, dealing with uh, large organizations takes a lot of time, and trying to figure out what that contracting process takes uh, is quite is quite challenging. Other aspects are kind of financial system architecture, blockchain systems. So, th- there's a challenge, which is the fact that it, in many ways. Now, building blocks is not this, but crypto-based systems replace financial architecture, right? Um, they do not yet work with financial architecture, right? Um, the building blocks program doesn't have any intrinsic, the tokens don't have any intrinsic value. Um, now, what that means is you can't trade them on an exchange. If I give you a building blocks token, There's no way you can use that token apart from in the context of the camps. So identifying how to build that into existing and very mature financial architecture is quite difficult, especially with the emergence of new technologies like like mobile money. So um, so right now we're just trying to figure out exactly how that will look and, and what that could what that could look like going into the future. So I guess that those are those are the two things. I've one, number one, massive massive challenges around contracting. Two, the technology is still very emerging, and we still have to try and figure out how it really fits in when we think of um, when we think of uh, new ways of paying, especially when we think of mobile money, when we think of uh, uh, new financial architectures. And I think there's always going to be growing pains with it when it comes to scale. So. You know, be that internal growing pains around the organization having to align itself around this new technology and actually identify what that means for the for the organization as a whole, but also, uh, but also the 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 process change, the the mindset changes that that take place as well. 
with our partners. I understood it as a huge benefit that actually the intermediaries and that way the financial institutions, the banks, are almost excluded in the process. And um, But you're saying it would be quite important to actually have them involved in the process again. Wasn't that the whole benefit of doing blockchain in the first place? Um, so if I go back to my, my former point, WFP exists to support local economy as well. Um, local financial architecture is just as important for holding up local economy as uh, as actually getting assistance to the individuals. And so, and we have to remember that currency as we currently use it is managed by local central banks. Um, the flow of money in the economy is handled through those through those large, uh, very formal institutions. Um, so you can't create an alternative uh, an alternative movement of currency um, without there being certain repercussions. Uh, I mean, there are examples of local currencies around the world, around uh, very focused local currencies. But in the end, fiat currency and the way that we use real money is also an important thing to consider. Um, so I guess my answer to you is, yes, in the context of the camps, it made sense. But in the context of the communities, when we're thinking of people using unrestricted cash in just, you know, as if you're walking around Cologne using your money how you're using it, um, in exactly the same way, is building blocks the right system to do that at this point? We're still trying to figure it out. So from what I understand, security and privacy of the beneficiaries is really important, in, especially in the whole uh, refugee camp setting. Uh, why is it so important and how is blockchain helping, helping that even better than it was before? Sure. Um, okay, so your first question is why is data management so important in the refugee context? Well, in conflict... Individuals who leave the conflict area may have, can have, or can experience political ramifications uh, in the host country that is hosting them as refugees, as well as in their origin country. And so their, who they are, where they're from, can be very sensitive pieces of information. And data or... Uh, not attacks, but attempts at breaches to 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 get access to that data. Um, from what I understand, can be quite common. Building blocks, so the blockchain project they were running in Jordan, has helped solve this problem by uh, reducing the amount of data that we need to share with financial institutions. So, well, nowadays we don't share any data with them, but in the past, they would be organizing the virtual accounts um, that the the that the refugees would be using to make the transactions. Now, that came with the cost that you were talking about earlier. Um, so with Building Blocks, we're saving, I think it's about 40000 a month um, on these transactions. But it has also, re because, because we don't need to share the data, it's also created significant data privacy uh, wins as well. At least the World Food Program is mainly using blockchain for the authentication of the voucher redeem, right? Um, but another thing that blockchain can be used for would be identification. That is not something that World Food Program is doing mainly, as you've told me before the interview, 
But um, it is quite a big topic, as I think like one billion people in the world do not have proper identification. How would people use blockchain as an identification tool and how would it help? And maybe how would it help in your um, work area as well? So, okay, so blockchain in my work area, just from, from me to start off with, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just solve that question first. Blockchain initiatives are my purview. So I'm always interested in understanding how these things will have effect. And especially considering WFP manage about 20, 20 million or so or more um, uh, refugee and citizen identities. We, and we hold those registrations on our, on our internal database, on, on, a, on our scope database. We have to keep in mind how the world of data privacy and, and management of identity uh, proceeds. And so it's very important for us. But when it comes to how does blockchain help with digital identity? So I need to make a, a separation between identification and identity. Okay. So identity, the way that I think about it is the collection of information about you that is stored in a specific place that can help you identify yourself. Okay. But it is not the vector through which you do the identification. Now, what I mean by that is for you to identify yourself. So for example, your passport. Yeah. Your passport holds a photo. It holds your birth date. It holds a number. It holds, it holds most importantly, the fact that it was provided to you by a certain government, right? Because it's provided to you by the German government. It is therefore a form of legal identity that can be, uh, uh, that can be supported. Maybe not the right word. No, it can be trusted by other, uh, by other groups. Okay. So in the same context, blockchain systems, especially smart contracts, enable for uh, a number of new ways of providing identity to individuals, providing identi identity certificates effectively uh, to individuals. So if anybody knows about identity, the way it works is there's kind of three words that guide you when you think about identity. You have claims, okay? A claim is... If I were to walk up to you and say, I am 28, um, a uh, proof is this driving license shows that I'm 28 and an attestation. And an attestation is um, an organization saying this person is 28. Okay. So the proof is your driving license. Okay. The attestation is that the German driver's authority is the one that stamped your driving license, right? And you handing it to a bouncer when you're walking into a club is you saying, I am old enough to come in to this club. The digital identity idea um, on blockchain says that you might not need to share all the information because when you hand a person your driving license, they can read all the information about you. They even know your address, that information isn't useful to them. The only information they want to know is, are you old enough to come to this club? And so using something called um, zero-knowledge proofs, which is a bit of cryptographic magic that I fully don't understand, um, you can check an individual's identity without having to see the data. And what this means is you protect the individual's data, but you also satisfy your identification needs. Okay. Associated with that, though, there's loads of other stuff that you need to take into account, which is actually, you know, then how do you manage the, how do you actually, what are the different technologies that need to sit around the blockchain for you to actually make that 
work? Do you need to have a, a camera that takes a picture of the person's face so that can look and see that, that that is actually, you know, and then you use that hash to check the blockchain to say, has that, does that hash exist or something like that? That's where I think it becomes a lot grayer and a lot more difficult to figure out. Furthermore, the other reason blockchain is seen as one of the big drivers of um, digital identity is that in most cases, one, the identification is global. So, for example, you have a phone number, right? You're, how long have you had your phone number for? I'd say I have it for quite some time and I love my phone number. So I have it for, I think, seven years. Yeah, I've had my phone number probably for about 12 um, my phone number is me in some way. Now my phone number is me. The problem is my phone number is me in the UK, right? It's a plus four, four number, uh, which means that it's great in the UK, but if I go anywhere else, I can't use my phone number. A blockchain identity doesn't work the same way because blockchains are inherently global systems. Um, and so that identification, the public key, as we call it, um, uh, can create a s- s- one effectively like email address for an individual that's hyper secure. Um, and that simple fact that you have this one key that identifies you also creates an opportunity for creating identity around that key. That's why effectively it's dig- that's why digital identity is such an interesting area for blockchain. So I'd say that blockchain obviously has been a huge topic in the past years and just now in the past year and a half outgrows the whole speculation phase. And um, as many Ethereum fans uh, in particular say, now is the time to actually build useful things because um, all the people that were only interested in the whole speculation side of it now kind of outgrow it. Um, thinking the whole technology many more years ahead, in what way do you think you can use the technology? And what would be the far away vision, you think? Taking identity, um, the way you send vouchers and financial um, subsidies into those countries. Are there any other uses? What do you think? What can happen with the development of this technology? Sure. Um, Good question. I don't know, really. Uh, I'm still trying to figure that out myself. Um, I don't think anybody really knows, but I can tell you there are a few things that I'm interested in right now. So um, number one, the remittances process of, so have you heard of remittances before? I don't know. Okay. So remittances is the process of sending money abroad. It's the cost, the costs associated with sending money to a different country. From what I understand, this might not be correct. Um, but if you're trying to send money to Ethiopia, apparently from the States and you want to send a hundred dollars, apparently something like 40 or $50 actually get to Ethiopia or maybe even less. Maybe it's, I think it's probably even $30 get to Ethiopia. Now, 70% of the cost, sorry, 70% of your, of the money that you're sending back to your family in Ethiopia has been sucked up by the financial institutions to get money to those financial institutions in Ethiopia. So because of the global nature of blockchain systems, there is a significant opportunity around solving the remittances question. And there are multiple organi- multiple startups that are already looking at this question. 
there are already technologies out there that kind of solve this problem, especially using dollar currency. Um, like, for example, the 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 Dai coin, maker, the MakerDAO Dai coin, which is a, a dollar-pegged stablecoin. Um, and what it effectively means, what that means is uh, I can trade the Dai coin for one, one Dai coin is equal to one dollar. Um, that, sending that, to different countries would make my would make our lives quite simple and would remove a significant amount of cost um but it's very very nascent technology so it's would in terms of the infrastructure around it it's not there yet but i can see it becoming relevant within the next three 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 and a half years what other things i mean that as as that uh as that process develops as well um it's going to create a bit of pressure on local financial systems to a certain extent. Um, and that's something to take into account of how the, how will the financial system change when we're starting to remove pressure on remittances? Uh, and what are the different networks that are enabling, enabling us to handle that movement through, through the remittances process? Uh, yeah. So remittances is one area. Then another one that we can think of is uh, that I can think of is, um, uh, internal accounting. So, for example, Oxfam have already done a lot of work um, in their in their own organization to simplify the way that they transfer money between the federated organizations. So, Oxfam is a federation. It's um, it's not when we think of Oxfam, you think of one big NGO, but there's actually lots of small NGOs that work together, um, and money moves between the NGOs from like the larger federation into all the different offices. And then back up and around, and that's quite a complex process. And they use blockchain to simplify that. Um, so that I can see blockchain within the organization to simplify asset transfer becoming very significant. Um, another one is around supply chain. So supply chain documentation is uh, hasn't changed in I think it's like eight to nine hundred years. Um, and uh, when we're shipping stuff, when it's moving through a customs process. Um, that can be incredibly heavy weight and quite uh, quite problematic, and so simply putting that the 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 the, the signing at it, the signing and management of documentation through a supply chain um, that's already happening now, um, but it isn't mature, at all mature. I mean, even the IBM and Maersk um, uh, project is is still kind of, uh, from what I understand, taking time to to, to mature, um, and uh, we're currently exploring that down in uh, Djibouti and Ethiopia right now. So I can see it growing very quickly wherever there's a movement of documentation, wherever there's a movement of assets, and wherever there's a movement of where the, where where there's a need for removing uh, international payment costs. Um, and then the final one is uh, digital identity. So there's already uh, projects running around the world. So one in Indonesia, for example, uh, run by ID ID twenty twenty. Um, uh, ID4D is putting a lot of work into into identity systems. Aadhaar, for example, in India is being run on uh, uh, being run via or was kind of initiated through ID4D ID as ID for development. It's one of the World Banks. It's the big World Bank activity around identity. Um, and I mean, blockchain systems and identity have been around now for a while. Actually, um, they called them different things. They called them uh, timestamp, time stamped cryptographic signing was what it was called um i think uh and it's the the ethiopian model um of managing how data about citizens is 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 handled and um and actually that's that's something that i think is going to grow as well so like personal data records as these become more uh as as 
blockchain-based technologies become more 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 extended, um, it's going to be interesting to see how you can package data about people, and then turn that packaged data into something that's useful for the individual. So, for example, we have um, one one thing that I'm interested in exploring is let's say you're an organization that's dealing with smallholder farmers, like WFP does on a regular basis. But that smallholder part farmer doesn't have, um, isn't financially included. They don't have a bank account. How can we use the record of our transactions with that person uh, to provide them with a credential that they can then use to access um, to access a financial uh, uh, product, for example? Um, Another question is actually how do you do this in low technology environments? You know, blockchain is based on an idea that everybody has access to technology and that's definitely not the case. I mean, we live in, we live in a very polarized world right now, um, where, where the, the distance between, um, you know, even myself working for the World Food Program and the people that the World Food Program serves, um, is so distant that we need to figure out how to solve many of the challenges um, uh, based on what currently exists. And I think we, in many cases, run into the challenge of trying to solve for the future when the future doesn't exist yet. Very interesting. So obviously at Futurest, we try to help c- different companies um, to think more innovative, to develop new business models. Um, but also, especially for corporates, there's this huge area of uh, corporate innovation and how to actually build new stuff in an environment that is already a little bit hot stuck and maybe stuck in its own procedures. And the full World Food Program, obviously, you work in its innovation accelerator and it's an institution in the true sense of the word international as part of the UN. Tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing, what companies you're working with, what are you trying to accomplish? Sure. I can't really talk about what com- what companies we're working with, um, but I can talk a little bit about what we do as an accelerator. Um well, I mean, we obviously have large partnerships. So we, you know, we've announced partnerships with Google, with Alibaba, with, uh, Palantir, um, you know, a variety of very large organizations that we work with. But normally we work with those organizations on, on, on very business as usual type work. Um, and we are, although also looking at how we can innovate with them as well. Um, with Google, for example, we're doing a lot of work around the management of, um, data in disaster response. So actually using maps to identify pre-disaster, post-disaster, and actually plan uh, the response to emergencies using uh, available data, training algorithms around that. So using AI to solve problems around disasters. But you asked, I mean, the start of your question was about corporate innovation. And I mean, if you were to build, I mean, I'll give everyone a moment just to think about the United Nations and like build a picture of what the United Nations is. And I'm guessing that most people are thinking of the General Assembly, lots of suits, lots of political, quite uh, quite airy-fairy or high-level discussions around, you know, quite intangible things. Whereas the innovation mantra is try, test, fail, um, and then test it again, and then test it again, and then through that process, we will find the truth kind of thing. Um, what that means is you have this 
you definitely have an ideological clash in some cases um, where, you know, the incumbent position of, well, we have been doing this for ages. We don't need to change the way that we work with, yes, that doesn't matter. Let's still try something new um, can always come head to head. I used to work at IBM um, and even at IBM internally at IBM and IBM is known as an organization for continuously changing its identity. Um, you know, 360,000 people who change who they are as an organization every 10 years, starting from making cheese graters to turning into a, um, turning into a, uh, uh, well, moving into now kind of more of the more into what they do now effectively. Even at that organization, it was difficult to drive corporate innovation. And it's quite interesting. I think all organizations are susceptible to, um, to not resting on their laurels, but becoming entrenched in one way of doing things. So how do we handle that as the innovation accelerator? For us, the, num- the first thing is you have to understand how to contain risk. So first step make sure the risk of the project does not put the business's usual activities into, uh, does not disrupt business's usual activities. Okay, so when you're piloting, your pilot should be external to business as usual. What that does is it protects the pilot from the bottom end of the hockey curve. Okay, so do you know what a hockey curve is? Tell me about it. All right, so a hockey curve is... Um, Imagine like a hockey stick, like a like a uh, an ice hockey stick. You've got the the short end, which goes down, and then it comes up afterwards. Okay, the period, the bit between the the down and the up is is the negative part of the um, of the production of innovation, and that's the disruption part. That's when things are actually going worse than they were before, and. Managing the risk of that process is extremely hard. The way, the reason we use design thinking, the reason we use HCD, the reason that we use lean startup methodologies, the reason that we apply um, collaborative design principles is to remove risk. Um, by removing risk, you simplify your um, that you simplify the process of taking that to scale. Now, the innovation part is actually normally the simple bit. The hardest part is then taking that innovative project and scaling it. Um, to solve that problem, you have to bring in, one, you have to have champions within the organization, within the business as usual units, who are interested in, who own the questions. So, for example, normally in most organizations, there is somebody who is thinking about what does the next 10 years or what does the next five years look for my, look like for my organization? So for example, in an, in a, in an automotive company like BMW, for a long time, they've been tackling the question of, okay, what does mobility mean in the context of a city? How do I handle the movement of people? Um, when people own less cars, cars, what does this mean for BMW's future? So if I'm trying to build an innovation project, that looks at those questions. I need to find the person who has been made responsible for answering them. And I need to work with that person in the business as usual unit to help me craft my problem statements 
and to be involved in the processes we're developing. You know, apply that to insurance, for example. You know, how can I build new um, innovative insurance models to ensure that on the one hand I'm providing better service to my customers, but on the other hand I'm maintaining competitiveness against the industry um, and making sure I'm also being being uh, receiving receiving funds. Um, uh, what does digital mean for customer experience in the insurance world? People own these questions in these organizations. The most important thing is to find them and to work with them. You get them on board, they become your champion, you re- remove risk, the next stage is building a business case. Okay, so after a pilot, the core is how does that pilot contribute to a uh, cohesive understanding of how it will change or influence the strategy or tactics of the organization going forward? Is it going to reduce cost? Is it going to increase profit? Is it going to um, uh, derive a better customer experience, which will then again drive more cost or more, uh, uh, drive more cost reduction or drive more profit? Uh, or in our or in our case as a as a uh, large um, uh, NGO, uh, international uh, civil organization um, how is it going to increase more impact and how is it going to actually get food to the hungry um, if you can take those if you can take your pilot your champion remove risk and then create a cohesive business case then you have the right to scale and once you get the right to scale then there's a whole raft of other problems, including, you know, how do you integrate with current systems? But normally those will fizzle away because if you get the business case with the champion into the right hands and you get corporate senior level approval to drive something like that, uh, a lot of the internal problems with actually changing the systems fall away. That's incredible. Wonderful. As you are not really allowed to tell me about the specific companies that you're working with, mm-hmm. um, you talked a little bit about machine learning. We've talked about blockchain in a little bit more detail. What technologies, innovations are you most, most excited about in defeating hunger in the world, in, in the work that the World Fruit Program is doing? I think it's important to consider that technology is not the only thing that will drive, that will solve hunger. And what would it be? I will explain. So, for example, we have a project that looks at hydroponics in the accelerator and actually how you can build a hydroponic farm effectively inside your house, growing fodder for goats or for cows or for whatever. That's an example of driving livelihoods using really, really low-tech things. It does require education, but it's simple, you know? And we're doing this in... Chad in desert environments where there is no water and no nothing. And these people can still feed their goats and their cows and whatever. That's an example of a non-digital technology that could lead to reducing hunger. The problem that we have again is scale. So what am I most excited about generally? I don't, right now, I don't know. Again, there's a lot of stuff I don't know right now. And and crafting a uh, a clear understanding of what are the biggest influences to solving hunger is is difficult. Um, but there's obvious contenders. You know, there's synthetic foods. So I'm a big proponent of synthetic meats uh, for two reasons: uh, significant reduction in climate change, which means less geopolitical problems, less uh, migration, um, less uh, land utilization. Um, so synthetic meat, really useful. Um, lab-grown foods as well. Um, again, really useful. Um, 
I think those two, if we can get them to scale, would be a huge driver of change. Um, other things around, you know, actually driving individual livelihoods, so helping people uh, uh, actually um, support themselves better, I think, is a very important focus. Um, and now I'm really speaking from a personal perspective. I think one of the biggest challenges is actually how do we how do we start creating a little bit more equality in our consumption structure, because um, you know as I used to work in restaurants uh, in in uh, in London, um, and the amount of food waste that takes place in a restaurant, you know, we must be wasting. I mean, I know that I even waste like fifty percent of my food sometimes uh, out of my fridge when I'm, you know, sudden travel. You go away for five days, you get back, all the food is rotten, you throw it away. We have to figure out how to solve problems like that as well. Um, uh, and I think the, the real concept is. Hunger is a very acute problem that is caused by a significant number of variables. So it's difficult to say what I think would be the biggest biggest influences of that. I just came from the U.S. and visited the South by Southwest, and I was really excited to try the Impossible Burger in New York. Have you tried before? I haven't. That one and Beyond Meat, both incredible startups. I think the the leading ones in producing synthetic meat, it actually tastes like meat. You have that slight aftertaste, but just just a hint. But thinking it two years ahead in the like next third iteration or something, it's going to be incredible, and it's actually going to be a real subsidy for people that can not live without meat. Mm. Um, so very excited about that as well, um, Gustav. Yeah. Sure, that's also a premium product, though. True, but it is a premium product now. Yeah, agreed. It's a. It, you're right. It is a premium product now, and the ideal the ideal scenario is for that not to happen. But that we're asking, we're trying to solve two problems. One problem is how do we reduce our meat consumption, and the other one is how do we feed feed the hungry. And I think, ideally, they are related, and I hope they are. I don't know, you know, what the indicators look like. Um, And I'm very excited about it too. Don't get me wrong, but I just want to want us to realize that it's a much broader question when we talk about solving hunger. Very true, Gustav. Thank you so much for talking to me. Um, really interesting what you're doing. Um, you are basically a one man show. Um, I'm definitely not a one man. I'm definitely not a one man show. There's a lot of people in the accelerator. We're actually hiring right now. Um, so if there's anyone who's interested, then feel free to put through applications. Um, and I think we, we're, we're about 30 people now and we're looking to grow significantly by the end of the year. I very much hope to talk to you again. Um, maybe in one or two years, let me know what you're doing and thank you so much for this conversation. Pleasure, mate. My pleasure. Good luck. Mm -hmm.